All right, the scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 27, verses 27 to 56. This is the word of the Lord. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From, from noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of the many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were, with, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the word of the Lord. We, uh, we, we're going to come to the table this morning, and what I hope is that, um, that the, this passage and, and a few, few things that I'm going to say will help lead us there. Uh, the Lord, brothers and sisters, the Lord has set a table for you this morning. 
uh, that's where we're headed. That's the, that's the good news. And so if you, if you hear nothing else, just if you sort of phase out as I'm talking, if, if life is sort of beating you down to the point where you can't see much else, there's a table set for you this morning and that the word of the Lord is going to bring us there. But that, that's where we're headed. That, that's the central piece of this morning. God has given us a table, a meal of faith. Um, the passage that, uh, that was read for us is perhaps the well no- most well-known death in the history of the world, which is kind of a stunning thing to think about. Um, and it's a death that is wrapped in darkness. Uh, and, and so what I'd like to do is just kind of consider uh, verse 45 for a few minutes with you. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a death wrapped in darkness. And so I just want to consider with you this morning, what is that darkness? And how could it possibly be overcome? What is the darkness? Where does it come from? What are the sources of this darkness um, in the land? And how can it be overcome? What, what breaks the power of this darkness? Um, Right in the middle of the afternoon, darkness comes over all the land. I've never experienced anything like that before. I can tell you being in, in Europe recently that I've experienced the opposite, light coming all over the land when it shouldn't be. Um, it's 11 o'clock in Germany, and it's bright outside. Um, it's totally bizarre uh, and kind of fun in a way. This not so much. Uh, if you were to leave the service this morning and it would be completely dark outside, you would not be like, great, good things are going to happen. Um, there would be a sense of foreboding. Uh, and, and, and that's partly because what, what Matthew's intention all through this gospel has been is to show us that Jesus is not just a great teacher. Uh, uh, he's not just sort of a historical figure. The claim of Matthew and the claim of our faith, the claim of Christianity, is, that, um, is, is not just that Jesus was crucified, um, and that's important. The Romans crucified thousands of people. Uh, in very much the same way that is described in this passage. Um, they did it uh, to, to expand and maintain order and security in their empire. But, but the claim, the, the particular thing that Matthew wants us to see is that um, the, the Jesus of Nazareth is crucified. Um, and that's, that's important because Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the flesh. And he has been crucified. God is crucified in this scene. So if, if that's true, and whether you believe that or not this morning, um, uh, just follow with me the logic then of what that means about this darkness. If, if, God in fa- if Jesus is in fact God in the flesh and he's crucified um, at, the ha- at the hands of people, um, what does that mean about the darkness that comes between noon and three? Well, it, we, if we go back, we can get a couple ideas about what this darkness might, might be. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the story uh, of Scripture Genesis 1, um, and a reader of Matthew would have certainly been uh, tuned in to this idea uh, of what Genesis 1 tells us. Uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and for those of you who know this, right now the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and what did God say? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, So God is the creator of physical light. The, the light that we experience, the light you'll experience when you go outside, Scripture tells us that God is the originator of that. Um, but, so he speaks light into distance, but also what Scripture tells us is that 
Jesus himself then is the light of the world. Um, John 1 tells us that through him all things were made, that's Jesus, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So Jesus is the creator of light, um, he's the originator of light, and he is the one who is light himself for all people. And that person is dying in the passage we read. So, so then, you see, the part of the darkness is the earth itself is sort of shuddering at the fact that the light himself is dying around, in their midst. The very light of the sun diminishes because its source, its creator, is dying. Um, and you, you know something about this if you've ever, um, it, you know, the, the, the comic book image of the person who is upset or is having a bad day is what? There's sort of a, a cloud hanging over them, right, that follows them around all day. Um, that's a really good description. I've had a couple days like that this past week where I've done things I know were not so great. And I've been, I've felt that cloud, you know, around me. You, you feel sort of, it feels like creation is sort of just kind of getting darker around you. Um, that's what depression often feels like. That's what um, loss feels like often. Um, and certainly when you feel guilty or sad, uh, darkness feels like it's coming around us. And so creation is wilting around and mourning Jesus. The beautiful and creative mind that originated light itself is yielding up his life. So part of the darkness is it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's creation. It's wilting around him. Uh, another source of the, the darkness um, if God himself is the light of the world, um, then, then, then it also stands to reason that he won't give light to what is evil. If his light is the life of men, then he won't give light to what is evil. Uh, when humans rebel against their creator, darkness comes upon them. When you push back against the God who is light, um, he doesn't just say, that's all right, I'm going to change what light is just for you so you can have a little bit of that light anyway. No, he, lightness withdraws from human evil um, because you're pushing back against the God who is good, who is light himself. This is, this is one way to think about the prophets, the Old Testament, when it talks about the impending judgment of God and his wrath. Um, so here, this is Amos 8, 9, and 10, uh, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. He says, I will make this, this is God's judgment. This is the Lord declaring, I will make the sun go down at noon. Seems very particular. Uh, and darken the light in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Uh, so the, what, what Amos, what, what the Isaiah does this, what, the, what Jeremiah does as well in their prophecies is they speak of a darkness that comes from God's judgment on human sin. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? If we hold that together with Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that beautiful creation is shattered by human rebellion, by the rejection of God, by humanity's failure to live, uh, to live as God made us to live in relationship with him, in relationship with one another, in relationship to ourselves, in relationship to the creation itself. And so darkness comes as a result of that um, against 
It's his judgment against evil. Um, so the two sources of darkness, right? One more, one more to give you. Um, and and it, it comes most clearly actually in, in Luke's account of Jesus' arrest. Um, you, you might be familiar with this. At the moment of Jesus' arrest, which we, we looked at last week, this is in Luke 22, um, 52 to 53. I'll just read it quickly for you. Uh, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come out for him. And remember, they had come to arrest him, right, this big group. And, and Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But then hear this, this is what Jesus says. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So, so you have Jesus' judgment is darkness. You have creation itself as a source of darkness because the light of the world is being, is being killed. But then you also have this, this reigning darkness that comes from, from the hands of people who are, who are assaulting Jesus. The, what, the darkness that comes is also the assaulting powers of evil, the evil in the hearts of the people um, that is reigning darkness around Jesus. Uh, and and it sort of it makes sense, right? If you follow this this image of darkness um, that's surrounding Jesus at this moment, and you read through this passage, what you'll find is is just extreme blindness in everything that people do to Jesus. Uh, so th- so just follow with me a couple of the, couple of the details from the story from the humiliation. Um, the soldiers uh, they put a crown on Jesus' head, uh, and they put a red robe around him, which is sort of a royal, which would indicate royalty. And, and they give him a staff. They, they're dressing up the king of the universe as a king to mock him. Sort of the ultimate blindness, right? Um, the, the, uh, the insults that are hurled at Jesus on, uh, when he's on the cross. If you are a king, if you are a savior, save yourself. Uh, the sign above his head, king of the Jews. Uh, it says, Precisely who he is, he's the king, and yet it's given as a mockery, as though he's not, right? It's, it's a total blindness. Um, then, of course, the blindness that comes from, from Judas and the Sanhedrin, that, um, what they think is that they're preserving themselves, but really they're bringing about their downfall, right? Um, Pilate thinks that he's preserving the empire, but what we know about the history of Christianity is that what he's doing is going to, bring, is going to in large part, bring, around the, bring about the downfall of the Roman Empire by, by stirring on and bringing about this revolution of Jesus. The disciples think that they're saving their life by running away from Jesus. So all of this, what, what am I saying? All of this is the blindness, the darkness of the people's deception of their own hearts. All is a means to diminish the only one who is truly immense. They, they dehumanize the only one true human. They try to preserve their own lives by putting an end to the one who is life itself. Um, and, and by the way, this darkness uh, is not just an individual human choice, right? What you also notice is that it's, it's being exercised and brought about by the human institutions of the day. Um, the the, uh, the Jesus' death is approved of and carried out by the religious and the political and military systems of the day. Uh, so think about that, right? The level of darkness there. The, the very measures that the, peop- the Jewish people put in place, the very measures that the Roman people put in place to preserve the empire, to preserve the religious order, 
are, are being used for evil. What they put in place for good is actually they're using for evil against Jesus. They're blind to themselves. They can no longer see um, themselves. They can no longer see the difference between good and evil. And so between noon and three, the hour of darkness has come. And so I hope what you're getting from this um, is that the darkness here is complex. Uh, it's not one way. Um, and there, there's a temptation now as a preacher to what I'm now going to do is now list off all the horrible dark things in the world to show you how that's still true today. Um, and sometimes that's, that can be helpful. Um, I'm not going to do that this morning. But because what, what I'd like to actually point your attention to um, is, is have you really... Uh, done business with, are you really willing to accept the complexity of the darkness? Um, are you really willing to face the complexity of evil in our world? Um, here, what I mean is that we're, we're often tempted to, um, probably, if you're like me, you've, you've defined evil in a very particular way, um, in a particular place, uh, maybe in particular acts or particular ways of being. Um, and, and you're not allowing the testimony of Scripture to show you that the darkness of this world is in every facet of, human, of the human endeavor. And, and the reason that we as humans decide, kind of divide and define evil as something less than complex is because, is, and follow with me, is because Usually that means that at some level or another, we can paint ourselves outside of that evil, right? Um, so, for instance, if you can name evil in the Republican Party, but you can't name it in the Democratic Party, then what you've done is you've painted yourself outside of evil on some level or another. You're not doing business with the gospel account of how complex evil is. And, okay, it works the other way, right? Just, you know, relax. Um, <laughs> If you can't name evil about Donald Trump, but you can name it about Joe Biden or, or Joe Biden and not Donald Trump, you, you, have, you have given a simplistic view of evil to your heart and mind. And I'm, you know, I'm, we're, we're using right the, all that follows down from that, okay? I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm hoping to, for you to see that in your own heart and mind, right, you've probably done the same thing with people in your own family. Um, and in your own life and at your place of work. There, there's a source of evil, there's a problem, um, and you've identified it. And usually that means that you've identified partially yourself, yourself out of that. And what, what Matthew's trying to show you is that whether it's creation itself, it, some of you are just are not attuned at all to the way that you degrade God's good creation. You haven't even got, given it a thought. Some of you are not attuned at all to the way that you are actually at war in your own self. That you're divided in your own self. Some of you are not attuned at all to the way that you are, you're, you're, you're at war with other people. Relationally, you have a lot of, of just brokenness going on. And some of you, it's, you just are not attuned to the way you're broken in your relationship with the Lord. And then we can, that, so the complexity continues, right? We're doing that at the individual level, the family level, the human institutional level, right? So, what am I trying to get at? I'm not trying to make you feel like, hey, this is overwhelming. I just want you to see that, that the complexity of evil is so great that 
that what you're going to do is try to think about it in a way that requires something less than death. You see, if I can minimize evil in my heart or in my world, then I don't require a death. I'm, I'm a little bit of a, have you heard the vampire Christian thing? I just need a little bit of his blood, right? I just need a little bit of Jesus. So, so if, we, if we hold that, if we, if we're, we see how we, we simplify evil and we see the complexity here in this passage, then we can turn and see what Jesus is doing. Um, God is the light of life. The only way for darkness to be lifted is for us to be restored to the one who gives life. And that's, that's in the midst of all that complexity of evil. It is a restoration that we cannot accomplish on our own. We cannot turn back the tide of evil in our own lives, in our own, in our own hearts. Um, you, you've been living in darkness too long by yourself. Uh, recently, uh, I think it was the last trip we went to Romania, KJ and Jolti, Oh, and now I'm getting it mixed up, and I'm going to get in trouble for this. We went to, we went to a salt mine. Did they take us there? Yeah, you took us there. Okay, good. Um, thank you. Uh, we went to this beautiful underground salt mine. It's incredible. Um, and part of what you get to see is the inner workings of the salt mine. And there was a huge uh, turnstile that they would use to raise um, the salt up and down um, out of the ground. And one of the tragic things about the way that they, um, that, that worked and it's sort of a beautiful machinery, but they would use, horse, use horses to turn the turnstile. Um, and actually, being underground in darkness does not make the, um, the horse blind. Um, but what, made, what would blind the horses is when their termite service was up, when they had given their work and life to underground labor, they would go up above ground, and their eyes could never adjust to the light. And in a matter of weeks, they would be blind. And so, yes, there's part of me that wants to cry for the horses. <laughs> uh, which struck me strangely. Um, uh, but, but, but the point being, you, you actually, you, in ourselves, we cannot solve our own blindness. You, you cannot go into the light, brothers and sisters, and, and restore yourself from the evil that afflicts you. Uh, you need another. Um, God bless you. So, so, um, so why did Jesus have to die in this way? Why, why the crucifixion as we know it? Um, why the account that Nancy read? Um, why not then, if we're the horse underneath, why not Jesus just, you know, go with your strong arm and pull us out? Um, why not just open our eyes? Uh, and the reason is because it, in the midst of this, it, it may be lost, that that's actually not how relationships are restored, are they? Uh, when you have to restore a relationship with someone, what, what do you have to do? How does that work? Well, when it works, you have to go to them you have to reconcile all the way to the depths of the hurt, right to the extent of the pain and suffering that caused the relationship to break. And somehow or another, you have to deal with that. So it actually isn't like just pulling somebody out from darkness. It isn't like just flicking a lighter and putting it on a candle. Um, you have to go into the divide to restore a relationship. And so... So when you and I, when humanity separates ourselves from God, um, it, it's more complex than being a horse underground. Um, we're, we're people in broken relationship with God. And when we're broken from God, stay with me, when, when you are broken in your relationship with God, um, you become less 
you, you're, you become less than who you're created to be. Um, you're not just snuffed out. A person cannot be snuffed out. Uh, do you know that about yourself? You're, you're an unceasing spiritual being. You cannot just be like stuffed out if you step away from God. But what, what happens is that you begin to become less of a person. And the darkness of our separation from God means that we are degraded and our inner self withers. That's what happens when we separate ourselves from God. That's, that's the evil that we observe around us. People dehumanizing each other and dehumanizing themselves. So when Jesus Christ gave himself up the way he did, he had to go by the way of crucifixion. Because crucifixion is designed by the state. It's designed by the Romans to, to perfect humiliation and dehumanization and degradation. It is the, the, there was no, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, you know that part in Romans? He's not saying that because it's sort of spicy to think what he thinks. He's saying that because the idea that the beginner, that the father, the, the center of your religion is a man who was crucified is so abominable, it's so, it's so shame-filled that, that it's unthinkable. Crucifixion is the ultimate humiliation of a person. Uh, that's it, by design. The soldiers would mock and beat and torture. Um, you, you would be naked, exposed before anybody who would want to come see you. Uh, you'd be thrown into an unmarked grave and completely canceled out and forgotten. And anything that you tried to represent or stand for would be cast under the dustbin of history. And so, see, that's why Jesus had to be crucified. He had to... He had to restore, to restore us to himself. Jesus could do it in no other way than going to the very depths of your separation from him. He had to go all the way down to be completely dehumanized to a sinful state of our dead souls apart from the light of life. He went to the cross for us to meet us where, where we were in our depths of dehumanized state. So nothing less than his total degradation, nothing less than the total abandonment and separation from his father, which he cries out as he's forsaken, nothing less than drawing all the poison from the wound, drawing all the strength of death, all the measure of darkness, all of God's judgment upon himself could restore us to him. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And what that means is that the death of Jesus on the cross is also then the death of our separation from him. He went all the way into our suffering, all the way into our sin, all the way into our dehumanized self to, to let our separation from him die. It is the beginning of the end of darkness of this world and in our hearts. So, so Jesus' death then... Because he went there for you, it's the death also then of condemnation. It's the death of blindness in your life and sins hold over you. It's the death of death itself. This is, this is what, we, what we call atonement. This is Jesus atoning for us. 
Um, this didn't make it into your outline, but um, Mr. Calvin here has a, has a good way of summarizing this for us. I want to read it to you. Death, sorry, John, John Calvin. I don't know why I said it that way. Death held us captive under its yoke. Christ in our stead gave himself over to its power to deliver us from it. So the apostle understands it when he writes, he tasted death for everyone. By dying, he ensured that we would not die, redeemed us to live by his own death. He differed from us, however, in this respect. He let himself be swallowed up by death, as it were, not to be engulfed in its abyss, its abyss, but rather to engulf it, that we must soon, that must soon have engulfed us. He let himself be subjected to it, not to be overwhelmed by its power, but rather that it lay low, but rather to lay it low when it was threatening us and exulting over our fallen state. This is, this is God's atonement and his son for us. He goes all the way down to the bottom of our sin to bring it to death so that we can have life. And um, so uh, just as an aside, kind of there's, I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but there's, there's, um, there's some major misconceptions when we talk about atonement. Um, and, uh, and there's lots to say, lots of theories, lots to talk about um, that would surely cause you all to fall asleep eventually. But, um, but there's two things I just want to say that real quickly. And Fleming Rutledge's quotes there at the bottom deal with them both. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to read them. I don't want to go into it completely. But I do want to say that, that part of what you, what's important to understand is that Jesus' death on the cross is not two things. It is not an angry father being convinced to love you. Jesus does not go and die because he has to deal with an angry father. The, the Trinity, three in one, they together are on a mission to redeem you and atone for sin. The, the Trinity is not at odds with each other. Um, secondly, Christ's atonement um, is not a sadistic father torturing his son. The son lays down his life willingly. They are together in concert, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if, if these are things that you're sort of thinking about, if they sort of mar your vision of what's happening here on the cross, um, I'd invite you to talk with me afterward. Um, read Fleming Rutledge. She's, she's fantastic on this. Um, but it just was, seemed important to, to set that apart for us. So, so, um, so where do we go by way of just thinking about what this means for us now? Um, Brothers and sisters, the invitation then for you this morning is, is actually strange. It's to enter into his death with him. Now, Rick will get to resurrection next week. But, but just in, in, the invitation is to enter into this death. And when you enter, when you go to Jesus, who has died for you, then there is nowhere you can escape his love and grace. You, you've exited, think about it this way, you've exited the realm of condemnation. You've exited the realm of condemnation in the death of Christ. So that, that's, if you're, if you're weighted by sin this morning, um, when we come to the table, you, you, are, you are free from condemnation if your conscience is marred by sin. Um, perhaps this morning, you, you're, what's most on your mind is your, your heart and mind is clouded by suffering. And, and so I just would offer this to you. This is from... Um, 
uh, the late uh, Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return and still all storms for eternity. So if, if, if your heart and mind is clouded by suffering this morning, I would invite you to gaze upon the Jesus who, who, went, who went to death, who did not turn back for your sake. Um, and then finally, brothers and sisters, um, and the worship team can come forward. Um, what does this mean for us? Uh, so that those are kind of used, like, hey, think about this in your own heart. What does it mean for us as a community? Um, there, there has to be a shift. The death of Jesus presents us with a, with a shift. We, we are not a community that's, that's content with the general march of progress um, at the hands of our own systems and institutions. Um, Uh, the, the hope of progress that just a little more technology, a little bit more government, a little bit more elections won, maybe even a, maybe even a little bigger church, right, will sort of solve everything. Um, just around the corner, just the next year, just the next generation. Uh, we're people who, who find our hope in the death of Christ for us. Um, you know that when, when uh, the Romans would crucify uh, people for a movement for rebellion, they would, they would often not only crucify the leader, but they would crucify all that were involved. Um, and so that's a scary invitation, but Jesus invites you to, to live a life, a cruciform life. You live a life of sacrificial love like your Savior Jesus. And what that means is that anybody who comes into our community, because we've been loved down to the depths, there's no one who can come amongst us who is outside of the generous love of this community. But we can say, no, no, no. You, you stepped outside of the bounds of how far we're willing to go to love. That, that's, that's one mark of a cruciform community. We're marked by people. We're a people marked by the boundless love of Christ who went down to the depths of our sin for us. And so we, we then follow, follow him in doing that. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you for um, your death for us. We thank you that um, in your death we have life. You atone for our sins. You brought death to death. You brought condemnation to death in giving up your life for our sakes. And now, Lord, as we, as we come to the table, um, we pray now, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you, would you move powerfully in our midst? Um, would you strengthen our faith? Would you remind us of what's true? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.